I I almost I sent you a, a text or something this week, being like, "Jeff, have you started reading these comics? Are you okay?" <laughs> I was so busy. Like, I What's know that? It, was it was just so like there was just so many of them, yeah. and they're not the best comics. That I was like. I should check in and see he's okay. I mean, I genuinely thought that. You know what's interesting is, uh, uh, yeah, I'm glad. I'm I'm sort of glad that you thought about it, and I'm I'm also kind of glad you didn't. Like at one point, I started. Um, you know, I'm trying to think how it worked out. I basically made it through the. Uh, I I made it. I think I made it to that the Menchikovich one, the one where it's like, uh, <laughs> it looks like. Um, the cover has like the Fantastic Four being beaten up by what looks like an angry mutated Philippe from Akewood. And <laughs> I was just like, Oh Jesus, I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know if Oh I can... it, yeah, it's yeah. Hello, whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building, episode 24, if I am counting properly, and I really hope I am. This is the podcast where myself, Graham McMillan, and my co-host and bearded mentor mr jeffrey lester jeff <laughs> mentor really huh I, I, you're officially my my bearded mentor mm. you're my you're the the wise one you're the one with all the brains uh, i'm the one with the enthusiasm I, i'm the one who drives the enormous uh mobile home around while you strap yourself to the top of it and pretend to fly Oh my god, what a great image. Anyway, <laughs> this is the podcast where Jeff and I read through Marvel's Fantastic Four Volume 1, all 414 issues of it. And we are in uh, a weird place mm-hmm. in that. We sure uh, are. We are doing this episode, issues 215 through 231. That's a bunch of issues. It is the last year and a bit before the John Byrne era. And as such, kind of feels like something we should sort of get through in a chunk so we can start 2017 straight with Byrne. <sighs> you know, just get in there and, and, yeah, just get in there. But these issues are really very strange. Mm-hmm. I feel conflicted about them in a way that I think that we will inevitably get into. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I suspect you're going to like them more than right? me, especially the latter issues. But <laughs> I have a weird, I have a, a weird admiration that we'll get to in a second. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's fair to say, Graham. Is that uh, there? There were two or three points. Um, it, it seems like I can measure the how good a run of the Fantastic Four is by uh, it's an inversely proportional to how many times I lose the will to live. And I have to say... (laughs) That happened during this run, surely. Yeah, oh, twice. Twice. There was two points where I was just like, I just, I can't, I cannot read another... I can't. I look forward to you identifying All right. Uh, Large part because I read these and I want to say three chunks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I didn't lose the will to live, but there are definitely parts where I was like, oh, oh, shit. I can't go on, I must go on. You (laughs) know, where you're just uh, so yeah, it's it's part of it is that we are doing like seventeen issues in a while, mm-hmm. 
which is which is a lot. Well, and and as a result, what notes we're going to be kind of speeding. Yeah, through. we really do. We just got to dash through them. But I, uh, but but it's also. I don't want to say like quality wise we're up and down, but tonally there there's definitely a split. Yeah, in the, these issues, you yeah. know. Uh, I I think for me what what I find fascinating and and you know we'll dig into it a little bit more is you have it it um, although the majority of these issues are by uh, Doug Mensch and Bill Sinkevich uh, with inks by Joe Sinnott. Um, and, uh, we've got Wolfman and, uh, Mantlo with some art by, is it, is Burn on the art for that, that issue? It's, it's Burn, yeah. yeah. And then Burn, Burn actually Burn has like mm-hmm. six issues of this. Six run? issues, including a two-parter that he, uh, writes and draws. The first time he writes and draws fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that I, I think is worth, uh, mentioning here, um, because I think it's important, and it probably—I'm sure it will come back. Uh, he, but this is at the by the time that we get to issue two thirty-one, it that is the close of an era. You know, we've read—we started off reading with Lee and Kirby. You know, Kirby leaves. There's a tonal change. Um, Lee leaves. I think that it's much more of a subtle shift. Uh, but it, I, it's safe to say that each component that leaves, it's, I think a case could be made that they should have left sooner than they did. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by, because you get to 231, is you have Joe Sinnott leaves, and Byrne, when Byrne comes back in 232, he's writing and drawing and he's inking himself. And yeah, and it's it's visually a very different. Yes, way. exactly. And I think I think this is that this is a big deal because for me because although there are parts in here where you see um, bits and pieces of the Senate lusciousness that is characterizes um, and is many ways the driving force the the glue that holds the FF together from, you know, issue 41 on essentially. Uh, it, it makes it feel like a fantastic four makes it feel like the comic, the fantastic four, these last sets of issues, it feels like Senate is uh, not on his game. He's got, a, he's got some, there's every once in a while you'll come across some stuff that's very lovely uh, in, in, but I think what's interesting is is with both Byrne and Sienkiewicz, they have very different approaches to faces uh, than Sinnott does. And so the art has is um it doesn't it doesn't mesh as well. There's a there's a yeah, there's yeah. a lot of um there's just a sense of disconnect that runs through these issues. And sometimes it's it comes from more than one part of the spectrum sometimes it's like the writing's not dialed in sometimes it's the art uh the penciling but Sinnott's inking even though it's consistent because it is running in opposition to two very different uh stylistic artists uh it starts it starts to feel um 
it just feels disjointed. And what's interesting is, is when you look at the covers, or at least when I look at the covers, there are covers here that are being done um, toward the end that uh, that the credit is since in. So it's Senate inking and Senate drawing and Senate inking. And they... No, no, it's Sienkiewicz drawing. Oh, it's, it's is that why? Oh, okay. Yeah, in. in that case, I have to revise my theory because the, those covers are not good. There's a lot of covers here that are bad, but I think that's one of the things that I find fascinating when we get to it is uh, Bill Sienkiewicz on the Fantastic Four. And... Yeah, it's, it's Sienkiewicz and, and Munch. It's You made a comment last time we did a Baxter building that the last batch of issues were the last batch of the 70s, mm-hmm. and now we're in the 1980s, and in many ways these 17 issues feel like the Fantastic Four trying to come to terms, or the editorial team, I guess, trying to come to terms with what the Fantastic Four is in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Because the Munch and Sienkiewicz issues are the biggest tonal change in the series yet. Mm-hmm. It, it is, we have been through Lee and Kirby with their amazing run. Mm-hmm. We then, what followed was, to a greater and lesser extent, attempts to recreate that. Mm-hmm. And then you get Munch and Sienkiewicz come on, and they are trying to recreate it in an entirely different way. Yes. And it's really, a, it's an abrupt shift. Yeah. It's a very dramatic shift. And because Byrne comes on with his burniness in 232, it feels like a, an unsuccessful or, or at least rejected shift. I guess what I would try and say is that that, that is... I mean, that's it in a nutshell. The thing with Munch and Sienkiewicz are they are trying, they really are. You look at it You as we dig into it, they are trying to tell, they really are trying to tell Fantastic Four stories. They really, really are. But they're trying to tell them as Munch and Sienkiewicz. And it doesn't work. There's this idea of like, okay, you, you need someone who can quote unquote be their own person. Uh, as a creator, um, everyone seems aware that you just can't do derivative Lee and Kirby stuff. You've got to have someone who who is a un- has a unique voice, but you also people, of course, clearly want the FF's greatest hits, whether it's the readers, and that certainly seems to be the case when you're looking in the letters pages, or even if it's the creators themselves. There there are bits and pieces in in the Mench Sienkiewicz run where I was like, oh yeah, Doug Mench is, uh, he's clearly an FF fan, but, uh, but it really does take burn. And, and this may be one of those real tipping points uh, uh, in a way for comics is burn is one of those dudes who is a weird synthesis of being his own person means being so buried in the material and such a fan of the material that he can really pull, he knows how to pull out the stuff that's come before that suits him. You know, he can alter his style and still be him and he can actually take the material and still, and we'll see this, I think actually, but what one of the things I do do find fascinating here is in the two part story that John Byrne, does here where he writes and draws it but it's inked by senate it is you see i feel just from the small chunk that i've read of from the issues beyond 232 you can see where burn will be and it's interesting that he's not there yet and there's ways in which weirdly enough senate who is this 
a connective tissue is actually part of what's holding him back. Um, it has to get jettisoned. And I, I would be fascinated. I mean, uh, well, again, I think we should dig into the issues so that we can bury this analysis in, inside talking yeah. about them. Because each issue itself is kind of a, um, a half full glass as far as the content goes. And I think we can fill the rest of it up with crazy ass theories. So <laughs> let's be through at least the first few issues of this, which are the end of the original burn run uh, before just yeah. cabbage come in. Yes. 215 is called Blastar! Mm -hmm. It's by Marv Wolfman, John Byrne, and Joe Sinnott. And 216, because it's a two-parter, is Where There Be Gods! Exclamation point. Plotted by uh, Wolfman with a script by Bill Mantlo and art by Byrne and Pablo Marcos. As the name suggests of the first part, this is a Blaster two-parter. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking... That's great. Blaster's good fun. Let, let's really have an old school blaster story. It's not really a blaster it story. It really isn't. Yeah. It, it's more a story about Reed's old chum. And anytime those words are uttered, everyone should get a little nervous. Mm -hmm. Because Reed's old chum is a scientist who doesn't understand the limits of science and becomes heavily future evolved. Yeah, he does. Yeah. See, his name is Randolph, but I can't remember if he has... If that's his, his first, first name or his last name, yeah, it's... That's yeah. his first name. Oh, okay. But I don't think he I don't think he actually gets, like, a, you know, I am Future Man or something hey. like that. I think he, he just calls Randolph. You can tell he's a super evolved human because he has a large, bald head. Oh, man. I... And he thinks he's a god. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the first issue in this two-parter is the introduction to Randolph, who is working on an evolutionary machine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go well. He's working with the Fantastic Four, but they have to run off because Blaster has come through from the negative zone. While they are dealing with Blaster, uh, Randolph gets beaten up and decides he's going to try and heal himself using his evolutionary machine. Funny story, it turns him into this giant-headed dude. Yeah. Uh, Reed discovers Randolph as the giant evolutionary-headed dude, says, come back to New York. That's a terrible idea, as it turns out, because in the second part, Randolph is basically conned by Blaster mm -hmm. into thinking, oh, the Fantastic Four must be after me because they are jealous. Why don't I fight them? Only for Blaster to eventually, of course, reveal himself to be evil, Randolph to turn against him, and everything is fine with two exceptions one franklin has to use his powers mm -hmm. to to make deal with blaster and two randolph just fucks off he's like i okay i'm evolution i'm gonna go into space now which to be fair is kind of the trope i mean this is but that's it it's all the trope oh absolutely I, in like this is an astoundingly generic story. well I, I, the only things that aren't generic about it are the mistakes and there's a lot of them like it, it, it what i find one of the things i find fascinating and i'll cover it very quickly it, the the things that i should say is a um 215 through 216 i actually really enjoy because uh 216 is inked by uh marcos 215 is inked by Sinnott, but with a much lighter touch than in other cases. So Blastar, as drawn by Burn, is a very Burn-ish uh, Blastar, which is to say that it's Burn's predilection for taking the more bestial side of Kirby's designs. Like, you can see, he, he basically looks like if Calabac was an ape 
in a lot of these panels. It does look weirdly fourth world. It really it? does. And and it's one of the you kind of half get. I, I sometimes wonder if this story was a, an unfortunate, um, like you know, Wolfman being like, well. I was talking with John at the Christmas party. He really wants to do Blastar. I've got this idea for this, you know, sort of classic, like, scientist becomes God, is confused by his godlike powers, and then leaves from for the stars, a.k.a. that Venn diagram between Star Trek and Fantastic Four, you know. That it is really a Star Trek story. It really, it very much is. It's everything about that. And what I find actually funny, and I don't know for sure, is... Uh, Burn draws the shit out of the Blastar stuff. And when it comes time, when Randolph has evolved himself, he is kind of got that kind of classic 70s design. He's got like wristbands. He's got a, a very colorful belt that looks like a golden rotary dial telephone. You know, he's got the tunic and the big yellow diaper, but he his bulbous head his enormous bulbous head uh, burn always, always puts a slit in it. And he looks like an enormous penis all the time. The only time <laughs> the guy does not look like an enormous penis is when he sometimes looks like a pair of balls sticking out of a see, gold diaper. So here's, here's what's funny. I totally see what you're getting at, but in many shots, I feel that he looks a, like a pink Mekon, <laughs> but I don't know if that reference travels because the Mekon is, is a British comic character from down there. But B, I think he looks more like a butt. Well, see, that's occasions. what that's true. Does he look like a butt or does he look like a penis head? It really is like, and and the thing is, is there's lots of little bits. I like how I I was like. I really like this design until I was like, oh, wait a minute. What am I fucking talking about? So there are ways in which I sort of feel like, and I don't know for sure, maybe Byrne was like, no, this is really, I, I'm taking, again, he's probably building this off of some Star Trek designs because the character really does also look like three or four different types of Star Trek characters kind of smooshed together. Uh, yeah. And, and, that was just his thing. But there are also times where I'm like, or is Byrne taking the piss? I don't know. It, But fascinatingly enough to me, one of the things that I thought was odd is that it, that essentially out of, you know, after the FF, come by, visit Randolph, fly off, almost immediately as soon as they leave, these weird punks who wandered off the set of uh, Death Wish even though it's the suburbs, show up, beat the shit out of the scientist for the flimsiest of reasons. He's lying there. They, they walk into his, his yard. yard. They just really, I'm like, <laughs> what kind of? They're not just like, he gets mugged when he's out. Yeah. These three guys actually come into his house and are like, we're here to muck you. Yeah. And, and they mug him, beat the crap out of him. And, and so it sort of instead of that weird situation of sort of the typical mad scientist who goes too far and risks losing his humanity as he quote unquote evolves, but then eventually discovers the humanity within himself and how that allows him to become divine, all that sort of stuff. This dude is shown Wolfman has him say like, I am bleeding to death and I will die. My only chance is to put myself in the evolvometer and that, to me, lends this really weird tinge of um, 
if nothing else, we've had a couple of different FF stories before where essentially scientists gets transformed. It's Stanley kind of loves it. Scientist gets transformed into powerful creation that fights the Fantastic Four because he's confused or he's about to die or some sort of blah de blah, and they have to help him like master his powers or change him back, and he's a paranoid nut. But this one has this weird element of like those guys fucked up his Kool Aid, and at the end when you see him, you know, Reed's like, "Come back to New York with me," and un supposedly unbeknownst to Reed. This guy changes the the thugs who are hanging around in the backyard. I don't know why, because they have money and apparently had a hefty meal and decided to lie down and take a nap behind the plants. Get turned into mice. No, 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 no. They're walking by outside afterwards because they're like, that was a great mugging, you guys. Why do we just go back and see if he's around? Victory lap. Victory lap. And then they ch he changes them into mice and is like, ooh, scary. He's got so many cosmic powers. But I guess, so in other words... Uh, then when Blastar comes and takes him, like, this guy, the through line, and this is not surprising, it is sort of a fitting capstone, uh, or near capstone to Wolfman's run on the FF, the 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 through line on, his, on this character's motivation and development is really muddled, you know? Oh, it, it's, it's insane, because you are supposed to believe this man has become the most evolved. You know, he is incredibly, he's not only incredibly intelligent, but his mind has evolved so much that he has these psychic godlike powers. Mm -hmm. But he can't see the most obvious con, mm -hmm. which is the stranger arrives and is like, oh, you're being attacked. What was that, an explosion? Kill the FF. And he's like, okay, then. Right. It's, it's astounding. Yeah. It, it's the laziest plot. Yeah. If there is a plus, it's that. It's so short. Yes. Like, even within 216, mm -hmm. he, he actually realizes that he's been conned very quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is it is a dinky story. The thing that's also amazing about it is, is that Blastar in 215 um, manages to more or less almost kick the FF's ass and, and then, as the tide changes, escapes and then spends the rest of the issue sort of running and hiding. So... There's a weird aspect in which Blastar, again, I feel like we've seen stories where, like, it's one FF villain and then he teams up with another FF villain and they're two foes that the FF can barely and defeat and what the hell are they going to do? But it's because it's very much like Blastar's on the run and he needs this other guy to help him because he doesn't have a chance to... He's basically being really kind of... It's a weirdo Craven move and you're just like... Blastar, I thought you were better than this man, but it it is, it is also it, what's supposed to be like. Oh no, it's these two amazing characters up against the FF. What are they going to do? There is no tension within two sixteen at all. Not only is it like the the huge contrivance of trying to get that guy to fight, but Blastar himself is kind of like, oh, while that guy's taking on everyone else, me and the thing are going to slug each other. You know, duke it out. You know, and it's I, 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 this is terrible because we have read every issue of Fantastic Four up until this point. But I'm sure we have basically seen this exact story before. Like someone from the negative zone comes. It might even have been Blaster <laughs> comes and teams up with like Sandman. Yeah, or I think that's it. I just had this weird thing of like I've seen this before and it was done better because yes, both of the characters felt it, like it, threats. It, you know. Yeah, and also it made some sense. Oh, well, there's like that this, too. this story. Yeah. 
literally makes no sense because why is Reed even taking this guy to New York? Yeah. Does that e- in the yeah. first place? But also, when he does, he has to therefore not travel with this guy yes. in order for this guy to meet Plastar. And you even have a line of dialogue that Reed's basically like, "I hope it's okay that I sent to my head." Yeah. Which, of course, is not. Well, and on top of that, he's like, after he turned those people into mice, I'm like, you knew about that? And then you're going to let this guy fly into New York, like the world's friendliest fucking place with omnipotent powers? And you know that he turned a bunch of people into fucking mice? Are you insane, Reed? And Reed's like, uh, uh. Yeah, yes, yes, I am. Don't, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, it's just what the f- anyway. So yes, two fifteen, two sixteen, not strong issues is what we're trying to say. I don't think. We- also, keeping up the tradition for the Fantastic Four, Wolfman leaves mid storyline. I guess that's true. Yeah, it actually keeping keeping um keeping holding true to the FF ethos. He leaves in mid storyline, and he leaves dangling plot threads. From his run that he doesn't tie off that someone else has to close up working from for a plot from him, sort of the same way that he did. Or, or for even Wien, you know, even two seventeen, uh, Bill Mantlo, John Byrne, and Joe Sinnott have to tie up a plot that he didn't leave any notes for. Masquerade is a great little done in one. I really enjoyed it because it's the Herbie goes evil. Yes, well, it does. Issue. It does say based on a plot suggestion by Marv Wolfman under here. Yeah, but the plus suggestion is Herbie is evil. No, no, no. It's it. I I disagree. I mean, really, it, it is. Oh yeah, actually, you're probably right because the reason Herbie goes evil, it's explained the way is he's actually possessed. He's a possessed robot, which I kind of love yeah. by Doctor Sun, yes. the Nova back, the Nova supporting character who was briefly in the absolutely terrible Xander storyline exactly. that would not end. And actually, uh, Graham, I have to say, this is totally on me. I'd completely forgotten, uh, someone mentioned it in the letters page, Dr. Sun, and this is why I think that it really is, Wolfman had connected these dots very firmly, was actually a villain from Wolfman's Tomb of Dracula that he pulls into Nova. Oh, no shit. That he pulls really? into Fantastic Four. Yes, yeah, the that's that's astounding. Yeah, that's so that's kind of crazy. Like Wolfman actually drags that drags that guy like a fucking plow through three different very disparate comic runs, and then ultimately just it fucks off and leaves leaves the Herbie storyline to Mantlo and team. And I gotta say, uh, two seventeen is a fun issue. Oh, it's super fun. So basically you have Herbie reveals that he is he is evil because he is possessed by Dr. Sun, as he later reveals, by attacking three of the Fantastic Four. The reason there's three is in a great oh subplot. I mean, a genuinely yeah. great subplot. Johnny is in a discotheque where he meets Dazzler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything about this issue is great. Yeah. Like this actually makes up for the shittiness of the last of the previous two issues. This is such a fun done in one because it's a done in one. It's over. The fight with Herbie is over super quickly. Herbie blasts Ben into the negative zone, but he's rescued by Reeds. He uh, takes out Sue actually fairly easily, and then while fighting Reed, he reveals that he is in fact Doctor yep. Sun. Uh, Reed lets off the flare. Johnny comes to the rescue, and the ultimate hero, however, is actually Herbie himself. Yep. Because let's face it, Her- you just can't have a story. This is the weirdest um, sweet swap on this man, this monster yet. In a way, you know what I mean? It's like. 
because once again, well, it's always, at the end of it is huh? Ben basically being like, I, he actually says, I hate to say it, but the little squirt was all right in the end, yeah. which the greatest thing is the man, this monster, he was a dick. No, he was, he turned out to be a good man for a fucking robot. Yes. Yeah. For a fucking robot. And once again, uh, apparently it's a rule of thumb. You throw someone, you throw a member of the Fantastic Four into the negative zone, whether you're possessed or not. All you have to do is throw them into the negative zone. You will be killing yourself in a in a very short period of time. So, but at least, at least in this case, Herbie kills himself because Doctor Sun has stopped possessing him in an attempt to possess the Fantastic Four's main computer. Exactly. And Herbie is overcome by remorse slash realizing he's the only guy who could stop Doctor Sun. How does he stop him? By literally flying into the main computer and destroying yeah. it. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Oh, but it, it's so it is so fun. It's part of it is it's cheesy as shit, mm-hmm. but it's only like eighteen pages long. It's it's eighteen pages long. It is actually a plot thread that gets tied up. Um Burn is being is being pretty synoded out. But Sinnott's work looks pretty good on it, and it's it's a more dynamic storyteller. Plus, let's face it, the near romance between uh, the Human Torch and Dazzler uh, was totally awesome. Like I, 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 part of me is like, it's, it, it's actually super great. It's really you become sad that that was never pursued. Exactly, because the two of them play off each other really well, really, really well. It's kind of that thing of like, oh, this would be great, and you can see where it's like. Uh, it would have been it would have been a really nice um it would have been nice so yeah what could have been but definitely uh ended up not and also one of the reasons it's so nice is both of them have similarly sized egos i guess yes. like johnny is surprised that dazzler can take care of herself and isn't like you're johnny Summer the fantastic four but that's because she is so so readily just be like i'm fucking dazzler well, that's the part that's great he's like why were you walking off because of my powers she's like no i'm on stage baby and just start singing and it's just like oh my god it, it is it's it is a beautiful slice it's like two big thick slabs of cheese but underneath it weirdly is this strange like oh yeah i can see it this would work. I mean, the whole thing of like, is Johnny mature or not mature? And her like hiding, is she a mutant, you know, her mutant thing side from him and blah, blah, blah. Like they totally could have milked that for like a sex, six issue romantic subplot, you know, yeah. it, it would have been it really is such a shame, such a yeah. shame that they didn't pursue it. Cause it's, but yeah, two seventeen is, is, is a great little issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's so much fun. Sadly, the same could not be said of 218. When a Spider-Man comes calling, again, by Mantlo Burnison, yes. uh, which is part two of the story. It, it's a story that started in Marvel Team-Up. Uh, no, Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. Oh, Peter Parker's Spider-Man. 42. Yeah. Issue 42. Exactly, which we do not. It just feels like an issue of Marvel Team-Up. It totally does. It totally does. And I sort of, part of me appreciates the idea that that for whatever reason, Mantlo is like, hey, I'm finally on the Fantastic Four. And they're like, you have one issue. He's like, okay, I'm going to fucking get people to pick up my spectacular Spider-Man run because I'm going to be there for a while. Fuck all of you. 
Um, I, I I hope I am. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. I wasn't following it. He could very well have left and no, then he, came back. He, he was he was on he was on Spy Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider Man for a while. Well, I I would think because he was all the way up through a hundred and he was back in the twenties. I just don't know if he like left and came back or you know how it is. Anyway, what's great is you get to see uh, Spider Man climbing up the side of the Baxter Building, and what's really wonderful is for whatever reason, it's a disguised uh, trapster. Uh, he, the, the frightful four have come up with their bestest plan yet, which is they, uh, in the issue we don't read, but we get to see recapped, they pretend to be the human torch and are like, Hey buddy, meet me at the statue of Liberty. And then they beat the pudding out of Spider-Man. And then here's plan two, plan B, which is brilliant, which is have the trapster pretend to be uh, Spider-Man, including climbing up the side of the fucking Baxter building in fucking suction cups. Like, try and wake up the Human Torch where he almost ends up dying anyway because the instant reaction to uh, either the torch or the building's reaction is, oh, let's throw this guy off into the dark. And then... And then basically where Johnny Storm's like, oh, uh, okay, let me turn my back and start get." start to get dressed trapters like okay i'm gonna hit this guy on the back of the head i'm gonna paste him and then i'm still gonna pretend to be spider-man by using these suction cups on the ceiling so that i can turn around and and fuck up other members of the fantastic four which but but here here's the thing that plan almost worked. I know. That's the thing. It's just like, I'm like, this. <laughs> that was so hilarious. Like, it's such a terrible yeah. plan. And yet it kind of almost works. Yes. Well, but I mean, but only because of these really sort of ridiculous. I mean, look at that panel where th they do all this stuff about about the trapster, like climbing upside down at one point, which I think is hilarious. He uses the web he shooters. Pulls off and, yeah, yeah. He has like a fake web shooter. It also is one of those issues that makes you go, the trapster could really be doing a lot more than he is. Apparently uh, if he can fake Spider-Man this well. See, but this is the thing. I mean, I do love the fact that his web shooter is absolutely hands down a dead on ringer for the Spider-Man web shooter toy that they're selling on those hero world catalogs uh, in these issues. Cause I, I had that fucking toy, but <laughs> what's amazing is, is when he, Maybe that's where you are, I think so. That's probably it. Uh, like the trapster, weirdly enough, when he ambushes Ben Grimm, he's suddenly doing acts of crazy Spider-Man like agility like, he literally jumps over, I mean, I don't even know where yeah, the storytelling is. He jumps is. onto the weights, yes. and then he jumps from the weights onto, like, the beads. Yes. But he lands in a headstand, yes. and then jumps off that. Yes. The trapster has skills that we did not know he Seriously, had. this... Also, what I love is he does all this, and then is like, I'm the trapster. Yeah. Why why are you trying so hard to be Spider-Man then if you're just going to tell exactly, everyone Exactly. Exactly. But it works. Oh my god. It he managed to take out the human torch and the Exactly. Thing. Exactly. Whereas by contrast on the very next page once he should have just left the Spider-Man suit on because you see him take his suit off and then he Electro who's the new member of the Frightful Four, the Wizard and the Sandman, all of them jump Reed Richards at once, all of the fucking them. And no, 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 no. You missed the fact that the uh, the Sandman tries to jump Sue. Oh yeah, no, there's that too. Sure, I, I, sure. And then, in a great moment, 
she tries to run away and goes invisible, but because she's wearing a nighty, the nighty doesn't go invisible because it's not unstable molecules, and so they end up zapping her. I love that. I genuinely love that bit of weird real world logic in such a dumb issue it's uh it's i don't know all of it all of it's dumb and then of course spider-man who they've been holding captive manages to get free and uh pretty much kick the majority of everyone's ass i mean it would be one thing if it if it was like turn the tides of the battle but essentially yeah, he basically comes in on his own and beats everyone up until Reads defeats the Sandman in a way that why has no one ever done it before with a fucking vacuum yeah. cleaner? Although I think to be fair, uh, I I want to sorry it's it's his power vacuum. It, yeah, it's a power vacuum. But I I do think that actually, if not the first, maybe the second appearance back in Kirby Ditko Spider Man run, um, it's it's the same thing. I I want to say Spider Man beats Sandman with a shop vac, and then everyone has to pretend that trick doesn't work for like the next. 20 20, (laughs) until now so yeah it's um you know it is it's a marvel team-up episode uh and it's not yeah and it it really really is there there's cute bits Mm -hmm. i like the fact that ultimately the trapster ends up giving up because the rest of the Four are like have escaped and are like come on dude yeah and then he he collapses that's a cute bit Mm -hmm. but it's it's a it's a terribly light issue (sighs) so so it yeah, you know? yeah it's which you know I mean it's like uh, they can't all be winners again it's sort of uh, it, it's it it's it's over in an issue which is great but it's not nearly as after after how strong twenty two eighteen it's kind of a weird letdown it was like I shouldn't have really much expectations but then uh, and then we get to issue two nineteen which is the first issue by uh, Doug Mensch and Bill Sinkevich Bill Sinkevich inked by Joe Sinnott. Um, and it's it's a it's a weird combination. It's actually in this issue the weirdest combination. Mm-hmm. When when Sinkevich comes back in a couple of issues, he seems to be more cynity. Sinnity seems to be taking more liberties with the faces yeah. after this issue. But this issue, it's it looks very strange, and and that's true. I think of all of the Sinkevich drawn issues. Well, so here's that they 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 look they look they don't even look like Sinkevich. But they look so alien compared with what we've been used yes. to on this book so yeah. far. It, it is it is very strange. Now I have to own up. Like I, uh, Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz, Electra Assassin is. I don't know if it's a top ten comic for me, but it's probably top twenty. It is amazing. And Sienkiewicz, when he fully morphs into weird, Bill Sienkiewicz is is practically a force of nature the stuff that he's he goes on to do for new mutants electro assassin later on writing and drawing his own stray toasters that remarkable adaptation of moby dick there's just a ton of other stuff but bill sankevich got his quote-unquote start and uh actually technically probably got his start at marvel i want to say doing some of the rampaging hulk stuff but he and Doug Mensch launched the Moonlight as a monthly title. It's very popular. A lot of people are like, ooh, Bill Sienkiewicz, I like this guy. He clearly has been looking at his Neil Adams, and boy, has he. But weirdly enough... Oh, boy, has he, yeah. I, For me, I, as a guy who loved Moon Knight, picked up those issues and was weirdly coolish on sort of pre pre Sienkiewicz Sienkiewicz Adams era Sienkiewicz so I can never tell I'm not as widely read in those Moon Knight issues 
but one of the things that strikes me, this Leviathan's really uh, underlines it, is Sienkiewicz is a dude who is not, to put it mildly, in control of his art. Sometimes he has beautifully rendered faces. He's got a couple of um, swiped from Adam's action panels that work for him, that work for him very well in Moon Knight and are weird when you see them here. There's a shot uh, in Leviathan's where Ben Grimm is like slugging something on like page two or page three. Oh, it's yeah, it's literally the third panel of page two where he has a thing bops him on a head, one of the doodads that he's holding, and he like tosses it. And it's that's Adam Sienkiewicz like guy kicking his foot up throwing the panel it's basically a kirby action panel from behind basically which is kind of clever mm -hmm. seeing that rip show up here is strange but the thing that bothers me the most is um you you get those weird rendering stuff you get weird offsize anatomy that a guy as you know graham a guy like me almost never notices but more than anything else for two dudes who are supposedly have worked together on Moon Knight and are critically acclaimed, they just cannot pace their comics for the life oh, of them. Holy shit, yes. I'm glad you said that. This and I want to say maybe the the second two-parter when they come back yeah. uh, have some of the worst pacing in a comic. I mean, almost as if the comic was originally longer and some random intern has been cutting up the panels to try and make it fit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's this weirdly Mensch is plotting. This issue, it has, uh, you know, introduces the FF, introduces uh, whatever his name is, Captain Eyepatch. Oh, Captain Barracuda, King of the Deeps, who Joe Sennett really goes to town on, on drawing him. He looks like he should be selling toothpaste, not raiding the high seas. Who, but also, doesn't he look like Stan Lee with an iPad? Oh, he kind of does. That's Oh, man, it's probably deliberate now that you mention that. That's, that's pretty awesome. Except he and his team of intrepid sea hippies uh, end up kidnapping the the amazing omnihorn or super cool thing or the thing from the one issue like the very first submariner issue of the ff is it three that everyone loves he manages to call up the giant baby huey and all the monsters of the deep he swipes it from the submariner so you literally have new york get invaded by monsters have everyone blame namor namor like you know, t ending up having to team with the FF, you've got a full-scale invasion of the New York by Stanley slash Captain Eyepatch that the FF have to fight off. This is all jammed into 18 pages. And so consequently, like, Sienkiewicz's idea of giving you a dramatic panel, like, you literally have a giant whale monster show up and unlike... The amazing sequences where, uh, in the first issue, where he's a full-page character back in 1963, you never see him on on a panel on a page that has less than like six pages, six panels yeah. to the grid. It it's amazing. So you'll you, like the biggest you'll see him is like a quarter of a page, yes. but the other quarter of the page includes one, two, three, four, five, six, six other panels. Yes, yes, so common. Which is it's. 
it's just I don't quite know what is going on in terms of Sienkiewicz's visual layout in the, this era because every single fucking page is far too yeah, busy. Yeah, it's way too and loaded. it's not helped by the fact that Munch is also crazily overwriting. Yeah. So these are astoundingly packed pages. Yeah, it, every, in fact, and this is, this is my, th- with the exception of, well, I don't know, we'll have to see when we get there. But honestly, this is not the only one with maybe the, Every the the plus is if you want to read comics where the, someone is clearly trying to jam a lot of story in, like they're they're not phoning it in, um, except it somehow still feels kind of phoned in. You well, it, it's there. There's definitely a lot of things happening. Yes, but none of it feels particularly like even interesting well, because because it's because it's too jammed. That nothing has a chance to breathe. Nothing has a chance. I mean. The the best thing about the Submariner story is thank God it wasn't the two or three issues that Mench originally wanted it for and apparently decided he was not going to cut anything. He was just going to jam it all into... This is super compressed storytelling to the point of just utter irreverence. There's no, there's no need to... Whatever the goddamn word is. There is no need to really read this comic because because there's so much stuff happening in it none of it means a goddamn thing and it's yeah. it's uh, and, and it, it 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 feels like an annual that someone has artificially compressed into right uh into this and by that i don't mean oh it's an epic i mean it feels as throwaway as an annual yeah yeah it feels like you know the fillings that annuals were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that has been literally physically cut up yeah. and shrunk down yeah to, to fit in the page it's 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 a mess it's genuinely a mess yeah. and and honestly most of the munch and cabbage stuff oh, runs no. a mess. and this is the thing that again boggles my mind i'm like these two are considered a great team they seem to be working i mean it seems as if munch is over plotting and sakevich is dutifully trying to put everything in there and, and not making any choices, and it it is it just it really is a shame. It is so flat. So, which brings us to issues uh, two twenty and two twenty one. Um, and the lights went out all over the world, <laughs> and Tower of Crystal dreams of glass, overwritten because John Byrne is writing this comic for the first time. It feels, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is, like an annual that's been split across two issues, especially because of the way that 220 ends and 221 begins. Mm. Uh, it feels like an artificial cliffhanger. Huh. Uh, in particular, because of the way that 221 begins. 221 has a really odd, uh, basically, stat of, of the final page of 220 that shrunk down and added really strangely to page two mm-hmm. uh that very much feels like they're like okay let, let's just try and paper over the cracks um good call weirdly though like it works better for me than the munch cabbage oh. stuff it's another generic as shit story this is the thing that's that, that to me is really striking is is that while it it gives you a little bit of an intimation of what's to come because honestly it is it has a lot i i'm assuming from what I, from what i have read of what we're going to see there's 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 a lot to like in here it's as 
John Byrne goes on to be, it it's kind of sluggishly paced, but after what we just saw, you have enough time for the character moments. You have lots of time for things to breathe. Bless his heart, like Byrne throws in uh, an origin of the FF. Like he's got, it's a good jumping on point for the beginning of an FF arc, or like you said, an annual, except then he's gone after these two issues. But the fact is, again, Byrne doing the Star Trek influence, his his love of the John Broom, Gardner Fox, let's let's stand around and explain mind-bending concepts, uh, and just sort of an innate sense of decency and heroism. Like, one of the things that's also... What's, there's little touches throughout here that's great. I love the fact that um, when the Pogo plane um, leaves the Baxter building, Byrne is enough of a fanboy and has already thought enough about these characters that he talks about the vibranium baffles that help keep the sound so that like windows don't even rattle in, in, in the Baxter building itself. Like That's a neat touch. And also, it this story works. It's uh, maybe a little bit patronizing, but it works because Sue Storm saves the day and she does it with a really nice mix of I have powers, I've got to solve these things, and I ha I'm a good person, and that allows the whole situation to work out in a way that is um, it's charming. It's it's a little dull, sure. It is the most yeah, underwhelming world threat I think that the FF may have ever faced. But yeah, so so the, the very quickly the plot is that in two twenty, there is essentially a power cut all around the world for everything yeah. that the FF go to investigate, and they end up in I think it's the North Pole. Am I, I correct? I think so. That? Yeah, because where they discover a mile high tower of alien crystal. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is is partially responsible. All of it, it turns out, is the uh, creation of a group of aliens who are basically stuck on Earth and trying to trying to escape, mm -hmm. trying to leave Earth. And Sue, while the rest of the FF fight the defenses of the aliens who believe that they are under attack, Sue basically gets on board the ship and is like, "You guys, I can help. I, me, and my friends, we can help you leave. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right?" And that's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. It, it It is, again, feels very much like a villain. Feels kind of unearned for two issues, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm like, kind of feels like an annual that they've split into two issues. Right. But but there are lots of, like, the character moments are nice. Mm -hmm. uh, the You get to see the FF. I don't want to say being the FF, but there is a lot of, like, oh, look, the things being, you know, kind of a jerk mm -hmm. but well meet mm -hmm. oh look johnny gets to do his flame on things sue is very maternal it's not just like oh the ff as i recognize them it's specifically the ff has burned positions them very strong yes it's like sue is maternal yeah. and sue gets to save the day because she is maternal mm -hmm. johnny is a hothead no pun intended mm -hmm. you know reed is he's very close to the stan lee reads but somehow less annoying yes but he has, the, he has the paternalism. He has the, I'm overthinking everything. Yeah. Um, it, and it, it's, all, it's all very nice, for want of a better mm -hmm. way of putting it. It really is. It's nice, but it is, it is uninspiring. And so, therefore, yeah. still feels uninspired. And yes. which is 
interesting because, of course, when Byrne comes along next, he totally ends up redefining everything. So it's it's fascinating. I'm curious the extent to which he did it. And then in the year before he comes back, has some time to think about what works and what didn't. Or, you know, maybe that's not at all. But I am fascinated that he... When he comes back, there's some very definitive ideas that he has that are that are not the same as what we see here. So, yeah, I also wonder how much of this was an audition piece. It it feels like it. It feels like it is. Yeah, right? yeah it feels like it is. And in that sense, there's probably a lot of like uh, I'm not going to rock the boat. One of the things that I find really funny it, to me in the opening thing again, and this this could be once again me overthinking it or burn who I feel is very, as we go on, we'll go on to see super cognizant of the tropes of the, of an FF comic. The number of times that, that the FF have had a comic open with either them falling out of the sky or basically FF versus gravity. Like gravity is one of the FF's greatest foes. I think it's really interesting and entertaining that, that all of the that the opening sequence has people being threatened by falling things, and the FF are right. just there to save are them. Saving yeah, them. exactly. Yeah, and, it it is it's it's a weird twist on, like you said, on the trope yeah, it, that you have Johnny and Ben both essentially like catching people. Yeah. Well, and I think I, Sue Sue catches catches them as well with the little force pillow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so right. every everyone except Reed has a little action sequence that not only introduces their powers, but instead of it being the typical "oh, we're falling out of the sky, what the fuck are we going to do?" It's just the opposite. So it's very clever. Uh, the possession of Franklin Richards, issue two twenty two. Here comes the return of Mench Sinkevich, and of course Graham's favorite team. My, my yes, exactly. My 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 favorite super team. Who let's face it, I don't think anyone other than Doug Munch remembers. Yes, Salem Seven are back, you guys. Uh, yeah, two twenty two and two twenty three are a two parter. Yes, uh, we're actually in a weird era of lots of two parters. That in like like the burden one. This two-parter and the following two-parter, again, feel like annuals that have been split up. Exactly. What's interesting, <laughs> Graham, is did you read FF issue annual 14? The I did, which is another Salem 7 issue by Menge, right? Uh, no, it's Wolfman and Perez. Uh, Perez getting another oh. shot at things and doing a big old Perez that... story. Um, oh, then I, I really do have to check You that. should. You should. It's It's... It's. I ended up for whatever reason being like, well, shit. I bet. Guess I better fucking read this thing. In part because I'm like, Graham's gonna goddamn read this thing. It's nope. It's a. It's a surprisingly <laughs> fun little story. It's just as disposable. It's just as eh. But there are some things in it that uh, I found fun. Um, maybe we'll talk about it next time we do a, an annual roundup issue. But uh, but yes, Mench Sinkevich Senate and again a team that is trying to figure out how to work together. Um, one thing that I do have to say that I end up liking is, is that Munch is taking a very active role in making Franklin Richards a character in the Munch Sinkovich issues. Franklin Richards yes. is a little kid. He is no longer just sort of the quiet, 
the the quiet child yeah. like the quiet prop in the background he he has a personality as soon as the opening uh, pages of 222 yeah it's a it's a kind of like weird annoying creepy character <laughs> yebo mommy and daddy are smooching smoocher again daddy i like it when you smooch mommy <laughs> oh, that is that is the worst. what's funny is that's creepy as shit. And then there is the purposely creepy callback later yeah. where he is possessed, where he tells Reed, hit her again, daddy. I like it when you hit mommy, which is super creepy, yeah. but it's even creepy at this point. Well, let's face I mean, it. Let, yeah, let's, it, it let's it's, it's, it's a real tough call as to which panel is more creepy. There's also, uh, there's also, it's great. We'll get to it. it we, we won't cover these in detail, but let's just say for people who want it, were like, what do I need in my FF issues? What I really want is a callback to the end by the doors. Uh, you're in luck because well, mention uh, sick of yes. you covered. What's that? Here's, yes? here's the thing about these issues. Mm-hmm. These issues, especially the start of this run, mm-hmm feels very much like, unlike everything that's come before, Mench and Sienkiewicz are not fans of the original comics, but have just read the original comics and are purposely trying to do callbacks. Interesting. Do you think so? Yeah, because it, it feels, especially in the dialogue, hmm. that they are try- that Mench is trying to get back to the character tropes of the, the Lee Kirby run. Mm-hmm. In a way that just hasn't been done before. So you get, like, out of nowhere, you get a callback to the FF's financial straits. Yes. You know, which is like, what? That that genuinely, no one has talked about that for 50 issues. Yeah. You know? Or, or you get uh, the, the weird, uh, you know, I'm going to the library scene. Which is like, what? Yeah. I mean... Good, good for you for supporting your local library reads, but or Johnny is again race car driving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and it feels all like stuff where Mench has gotten the job and he's like, oh, I should really read up in the FF, but it none of it feels in tune with what has been happening in the couple of years before, in large part because those creators, Mantlo, Wolfman, Ween, mm-hmm. were such grew up on the original comics. And took from it a very particular style of storytelling that was not this stuff. And so you end up with this weird thing that feels incredibly retro, but in large part because it's drawn by Sienkiewicz, which looks nothing like anything that's come before in this comic, feels more contemporary. Mm -hmm. It's this really weirdly like, is it? More retro? Is it more contemporary? <laughs> See, I, I feel that Mench is probably one of those dudes who was a huge fan of the original Fantastic Four, stopped reading after a certain point, or is like, I want to, there's some stuff I want to do. Because again, the Franklin Richards thing feels like, yes, the, the FF is about growth and change. It's time to have Franklin actually be a kid. Let's actually have them be a family. There's a lot of tropes in here. What it is, is I think Sinkevich. Like, Mench is overplotting, and Sienkiewicz has just not read the material. It leads to some really interesting stuff. There's bits and pieces, even in their, uh, that previous little one where you see weird shots of Mr. Fantastic, and you see some of that here. Like, the scene in which 
uh, Reed stretches and grabs a helicopter, you know? The helicopter? Yeah, I mean, that is, a, again, it's a classic. He he focuses on the butt, which is hanging in the library. You've got a dude hilariously checking out Reed Richards' ass while Reed stretches I'm into the background. Appalled. Yeah, exactly. Like, that, that, sir, that is... No one's that bad. No one's going to want to hit that, you know. And and it's really this very strange. It again, it is the. Mensch had had described that in his little uh, plot breakdown, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be that classic, you know, how that panel's going to look." And Sienkiewicz either deliberately or just accidentally is like, mm, "I'm going to do the yeah. exact." <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. exact Literally, opposite. You you want to see Reed stretching out the window yeah. coming towards yeah. you. And so what I'm going to do is show you his butts and he's stretching away from the reader. Look at look at that first panel on page 15 where Mr. Fantastic calls out Sue, Sue darling, where are you? And and instead of the classic like I'm stretching down the halls and around the corner and you don't see the bottom half of his body, Sinkevich does this insane angle on Reed. <laughs> this weird, like, frog march. Thing. It is insane. What? 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 <laughs> exactly. Exactly. E even the stuff of, like, oh, here's Ben Grimm, and he's going to grab a cab, and he's going to take the jerk and jam him in a trash can. Like, each stage of that is weird and off. And yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. you know. The whole thing. Almost everything here mm -hmm. feels off, with the exception of the uh, that very scene you're talking about with with Ben coming out of the theater. Mm -hmm. Ben has clearly been uh, redrawn by Sinet. Yeah, right. Like panel two on that page in particular looks unlike every other mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. in this comic, yeah. but looks very much like a Joe Sinet thing. Yeah, yeah. No, you you. That's wonder. Joe Sinet was just like, oh fuck, I've got to redraw this one. I I th I think there is. There's bits and pieces on it where there's stuff where Sienkiewicz, like if you look back at page five, he's got a scene where F Sue tweaks Franklin's nose. And again, Sienkiewicz has some weird shit going on with perspective. So Sue... Yeah, but, but Sue in that first panel is, is Sinnott. Uh, is it? It's Sue, in, Sue in the first panel of that page. Look at the face. Oh, oh yeah. No, that no, no. no. Sorry, sorry. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I For whatever you said first panel, I thought you meant back on the first page. Because the page in which she's given a piggyback ride to Franklin is uh, mind-boggling to me. But yeah, no, there's clearly aspects where it sort of reminds me of Jack Kirby's run on Jimmy Olsen, where you've got, you know, Wayne Boring or Someone Al Plastino redrawing the faces, yeah. you know, like yeah. last. Or, or, or uh, just two pages after that where Sue is looking for Franklin. Mm -hmm. The third panel on that, again, yes. has clear, like, clearly Clearly been like, that doesn't look like Sue. I'll fix yeah, that. Yeah, I, I will just redraw this whole fucking thing. And then two panels later, you get that sort of terrified close-up thing that is very much Sienkiewicz's bread and butter. And let's face it, playing hide-and-go-seek in the lab section of the Baxter building is not a smart idea. It, um, I don't know. Of course, I'm as everyone knows by listening to the other 23 episodes of this, plot hypnoses are not my forte. I feel like they <laughs> more or less don't matter 
in these issues almost more than I feel like they don't really matter anywhere else. But in case you're wondering what we're talking about, you get to see the FF be the FF in a way like literally you've never seen them before. And then uh, during the course of Sue and Franklin playing um, hide-and-go-seek in the the Baxter building near the lab sections, um, Nicholas Scratch, who we see who after the events in the FF annual has been been um, consigned to an area not unlike purgatory has figured out that his mystical realm more or less abutes the negative zone and therefore he can reach through the negative zone and possess Franklin Richards and take Franklin's remarkable powers to um, basically fuck up the FF. Uh, so um, he more or less does. And then, of course, thank God for reasons that are completely baffling to me. Gabriel Devil Hunter gets involved, which is. And I, I, I wish you were making that name up, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Who does it? It's, it's, it's really. I, I, I can only hope that Gabriel is like a, an existing character from the Moon Knight, Knight run, to be perfectly honest. Because otherwise, they just weirdly throw in this new character who exists for these two two issues and can do everything the plot requires of him this omnipotent child is possessed that's okay my name is gabriel i'll think very hard at him he's fine now so yes actually graham you'll be happy to know that gabriel devil hunter is from the marvel horror era of the early 70s and i i'm 90 percent sure that he actually is he, comes is from, he really genuinely called gabriel devil hunter? He, he well it's gabriel comma devil yeah. hunter but yeah he's he is he is he's from that era i think he actually started off in Marvel's black and white magazines. Oh shit! He alongside did. He Satana, Font of Horror, mm -hmm. yeah, created by Doug, by Doug Munch. Yeah. So perhaps so unsurprisingly, he was like, "I've always loved this character. I'm going to bring him back." Something which later, um, Mench does the amazing job of bringing back the Shogun Warriors without being able <laughs> to do the Shogun in, Warriors. In the yes. Best. Arguably the worst issue of this. Uh, it, it is. Run. It is tough, but oh my god, those it's, issues! It's it's surrounded by some dogs, but yeah, that issue in particular. Yeah. Holy balls! Um, okay, I'm going to finish the synopsis super quickly Please. because honestly, I'm bored of the storyline. <laughs> um, Nick Scratch is, is basically uh, undermines his control of Franklin because Gabriel turns up and genuinely thinks very hard. And Franklin can't do anything because yeah. he's put Franklin in a trance, which for some reason means. Nick Scratch can't do anything. Yeah, don't don't think, just buy it. They and Agatha Harkness shows up, and of course is like, my son, what? Mm -hmm. They go back to New Salem because, of course, they do. Really, who the fuck knows? Uh, but that's good because Nick Scratch and has broken Salem Seven out of magic jail. Yeah, and they are attacking everyone in New Salem. It, it's everything is sorted out. It's the short version. I mean, there, there's honestly what cures everything is that the love of the Fantastic Four for Franklin forces Nick Scratch out of Franklin's head, and then Agatha Harkness takes away his magical powers because apparently that's the thing she can do. The end. So, and let me just tell you, listeners, if like. If you've actually been reading along with Graham and I, 
that description, if you were, you probably have images in your head based on previous FF stories. And there are parts and pieces of it that more or less, I'm impressed that Salem 7, thanks to Joe Sinnott, really does look like Salem 7. But the scenes in which they begin fighting the FF, and Graham, you didn't read the FF Annual, but let me just say, part of the reason why Salem 7 is really dull is because they kick the FF's ass so easily every fucking time and then they basically still manage to lose but if you were to read the the plot description and then draw quote unquote the issue of uh, the entire storyline using more or less you know cutting and pasting various panels from the FF you could come up with a storyline that looks closer to I should say the opposite of what Bill Sienkiewicz does. Just the power of love panel in which the FF's love allows them, they are turned into a psychic beam that blasts into Franklin's head while like giant uh, talking heads. While, while looking really sad as well. Yeah, it's... The FF look really, really sad as their psychic selves beam out of the four symbol yeah. on their chests. Yep. And touch Franklin's brain. Mm-hmm. We see Franklin in profile, and there is sad Gabriel and sad Agatha Harkness talking to each other yes. inside his head. Yeah. So it's uh, that bad. Uh, imagine a classic '70s Marvel cosmic mind trip page, which we've all seen dozens of. Everyone but Bill Sienkiewicz has seen dozens of these. Bill Sienkiewicz has never seen one. He probably saw an X-Men comic drawn by Neil Adams, and he's like... It is that, that profile of Franklin is amazingly Neil Adams' X-Men. Yeah, exactly. And then everything else is just... It, it's, it is amazing. Also, I have to say, there is a graphic that Sienkiewicz does that is the sort of thing that he will later go on to master uh, that I kind of adore. When anyone who's possessed by Nick Scratch is talking, their eyes change and they get a highly stylized astral beard shooting off their face. And <laughs> It's the great, like, amazingly angular as well. I adore it. It's it, between this issue and the FF Annual 14, where George Perez does something similar, where he makes the astral projection of Nicolas Cage uh, Nicholas Scratch look like a. <laughs> nope, no, nope. Can't take You're it back. It can't take it back. Exactly. Please, uh, Graham, I will send you ten dollars to erase that from when you're editing this episode. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, my friend, that would have. Yeah, in. Nicholas Scratch looks like basically the world's best Sonic the Hedgehog villain. Uh, oh, a delicious Christmas cookie, I should say, in FF Annual 14. He's got this weird power astral beard here. He really does look like he should be fighting the Mario Brothers or uh, or Sonic the Hedgehog. He's just that darn iconic slash weirdly cutesy for a character that is supposedly, you know, is trying to destroy the FF. Um, but he himself is sort of redeemed by the power of love. And it's that power of love that allows um, the FF to finally do something that you never thought they would be able to do, and that is get rid of Agatha Harkness after... Uh... Well, no, to be fair, you say get rid of, she leaves. She decides that she's going... She decides for no reason whatsoever 
to completely contradict what happened the last time she went back to New Salem and stay there because it's the only place in the world she belongs. Yeah. Well, it, it, which you know is is the opposite of what she did last yeah, time. But... Well, not last time, the first time, because there's an annual appearance. Oh, That's true. I keep forgetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, unsurprisingly, let's just say that's a great issue because Agatha Harkness is like, I'm going back for the solstice ritual back in New Salem. Perhaps you guys would like to join me and have a vacation in a town where everyone tried to kill you last time. And the FFs are like, wahoo, vacation. Okay. Which is great because that happens later. I have to say one of the best FF tropes that have shaped up over the 200 plus issues is all you need to do to the first stage for an absolute foolproof death trap because the FF will go for it every time is offer them a vacation. Those sons of bitches it, it, every time go for it. Right? Yeah. I, I love that. I love that they're like, look, it's really hard to be a superhero, you guys. We, it's it's tiring. If we can just have some time off and someone's like, would you like – why come arcades never did this? Would you like to stay in my fantasy resort? Yes. I, like that's an arcade story. It to really is. Yeah, you're happened? absolutely right. Probably, probably. You know what? Honestly, we've got a lot of issues of the FF to go. It would not surprise me if that was a Chris Claremont issue, you know, in the late 400s that I guess we're going to make. Exactly. It, it, that, that is some sort of like Chris Claremont gift of applause. Yes. Well, you need you need a holiday? <laughs> Am I going to holiday for you? Waka, waka, waka. Here's a robot Hulk. Yes, exactly. Here's a robot Hulk. Now we're going to cut to shots of Arcade yanking on his bow tie while the invisible girl is. Yeah, he'll be laughing while kicking his legs in the air. And Miss Locke is behind him looking on severely. Looking on severely like he's overdue for his uh, um, spanking and vanilla shake enema. But then later on, after he's kidnapped, after he's managed to um, take the invisible girl and put her in like 11 different kinds of bondage to gloat at her while everyone else is stuck in like uh, an unbeatable Pac-Man game, um, she's later able to like use her uh, psychic, her force field powers to break those bonds and give uh, give him an, uh, a chocolate shake enema, which ends up sending him like hurling into space, screaming. Um, the thing place blows up. I've just written in a Fantastic Four annual by Chris Claremont. I'm very proud of us, Graham. I have to say. Uh, Good job, Oz. And let's be honest, it would be a better story than uh, this one. Hey, it'd also be a better story than the next oh, one, God. 224 and 225, mm-hmm. the Dark Field Illumination and the Blind God's Tears. If, listeners, you heard the t- those titles, I'll say it again, the Dark Field Illumination and the Blind God's Tears. If you heard those titles and thought, is Garth Marenghi writing the Fantastic Four? <laughs> he might as fucking well be. Okay. I have I I have to Graham intercede here because the fact is the blind <laughs> really yes because on the one hand you're right about Garth Marenghi but Garth Marenghi stole all of his best moves from Doug Mensch those story those titles are so Doug Menchian and interestingly enough I've got to say that this whole plot uh, is so Mensch like um. And again, this is one of the things that drives me insane. In the Darkfield Illumination... Okay, synop- yeah, synopsis the, these two issues. Yeah, I, I will try. A crystal, glo- uh, crystal dome glows upon a stage of a vast and frozen wasteland. Page one is literally a bunch of zoo animals breaking out of a giant arctic 
a snow dome. Then, on the next page, a red mist sweeps across the eastern seaboard and in the process wipes, you know, out the FF's powers, at least partially. The, you know... Well, it doesn't wipe them out. It, it, it makes them go crazy. They go haywire. Yes, exactly. Uh, they get supercharged. They get, well, yes, except they, they, they both lose their powers, gain their powers, cut to, of course, Vikings, then back to the FF who are like, okay, that red mist is, uh, I don't know, is like in the, out in the fucking middle of nowhere in let's assume the North Pole again after we've been there. Maybe it's the South Pole. I don't even really know. But you know what I also really love about this? They're like, let's go to Vestgate tomorrow. Yeah. In the morning, they're like, okay, you feeling better? Yes. There's weird, weird plotting stuff here. Uh, essentially, again, one of the things why I'm frustrated is I feel like Doug Mensch is trying to come up with a lot of visual grabbers. You've got like animals bursting across an Arctic tundra. You've got, and, uh, th and this is, um, Graham, you don't know or would really care, but Doug Mensch wrote every issue of the black and white uh, Doc Savage um, comic for Marvel a few years earlier. And I really okay. feel that this has so much of the classic Doc Savage tropes that I was genuinely sure that he was recycling an unused Doc Savage plot because all the apocalyptic imagery uh, and then the the attack in which New York City has a weird infestation of something. The super scientist is like, okay, this is all emanating from a mysterious location. You go to the mysterious location and not only do you get like frozen tigers like in the veldt, but you actually have Vikings holding machine guns and riding power motorcycles. And again, not only is that very Doc Savage-y, but the thing that breaks my heart is the big action sequence in which you have the FF versus Viking snow Vikings riding Mad Max style mag uh, um, tricycles, and yet it's still so goddamn dull. It's so right when when you say it like that, I want it to be like listeners who have not read this. This probably sounds awesome. It's not. It's somehow despite all of this. It's really dull. It's very dull. And again, it's this thing. M Mench has all that stuff that I'm mentioning. That's not the course of the two issues. I've literally just barely made it up to like page 12 of the first issue. You still have the uh, the FF get uh, captured. They get taken into this amazing pocket world and entire uh, ecology underneath the can uh, the canopy of a translucent ice dome. You have Doug Mensch talking about the greenhouse effect back in like 1980. Which I, I was fascinated by. Mm -hmm. Like there's some serious shit here. And this is one of the things that I find fascinating. As it goes on, Munch is pretty serious about trying to get some, some science into this FF science comic. You've got Korgon, the blind god of fire, which is a nine-foot-tall Viking who is blind with, like, crimson glowing eyes and a tragic backstory. And radioactive tears. He is, really interestingly enough, Viking Vandal Savage. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. He, uh, compassionate. It, I radiate... 
a radioactive meteor gave him his powers, but his powers are terrible. Yeah, his powers are terrible. He finds himself cursed with eternal life. He is in the process of dying and ended up having, as we find out in part two, the blind god's tears. His uh, had had something the equivalent of a heart attack that allowed him to discharge all this power across the planet. The FF were the only ones affected, but it may happen again because after all these years, he is finally dying. He has been keeping this entire special world alive in an amazingly detailed backstory uh, that is... It's spread it's, out over it a couple is, of pages. Uh, it is just kind of incredible how much detail that much goes into for something that I don't think it's cruel to say no one gives a shit about. I mean, it's kind of – I mean, part of me is like he, he, he clearly gives a shit, but I have this thing of like, again, it's weirdly detailed for a story that is basically Vikings on snow tricycles, you know, and then – the world's weirdest Thor um, guest appearance. Oh, the, yeah. So the, the second part of this, and in fact, the, the, the climax of the story is a Thor story. Yeah. Like, but it's a Thor story you don't really see. Do you know what I mean? Like, Odin basically like, oh, look, we've got to sort this guy out. Like, how Odin found out about I, him? Boof. Yeah. Like, I, I, why Odin cares? Who knows? It's super strange. Yeah. It, it's very odd. I mean, again, there's that little bit, and this, I feel, is, again, this sort of weird mensch in so many ways is like a precursor to the to the, some of the Marvel writers that we've seen over the last few years. He's read the comics, he wants to put his own spin on it, and he makes connections. Honestly, you've seen a bajillion Vikings uh, lost out of time show up in various Marvel titles up to this point. Um, you know, Mench is the only one who's actually like, oh, which means Odin's going to be keeping an eye on them because he is their god, you know? Uh, and yet, weirdly, even with that, it's just, there's some very weird issues. They're maudlin. They're, and again, because they're overplotted, Nothing has any heft to it. I mean, you would think the idea of Thor popping in two-thirds of the way through the comic would be a big deal. But he actually just sort of shows up in, I guess, the largest panel in the comic, which is one panel of three on a three-pager. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's dire. And what's amazing is, again... Every chunk of it seems as if Munch is trying to load it on uh, crazy ideas and amazing graphics. But because he's got too much plot and because Sienkiewicz is like, dude, whatever the fuck, I'm going to tell, throw in everything. I'm not going to make any choices except how tiny do I have to jam the panels to get your plot in. Uh, it just, it it doesn't land. I This was, this was... To me, I think arguably these two issues were my least favorite and the ones were around the time where I had to stop living because I really did get that sense of like, oh, I've read this as a Doc Strange pulp story and it's a good story. It's like, oh, I've seen this, like this could be kind of brain breaking. Like you've got Vikings with machine guns on, on atomic tricycles in the snow. That's everything I want to see, but because it's not being drawn by Frank Frazetta, because it's being drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, who's like, 
Uh, this is going to be. It's been it, because it's being drawn by young. Bill yeah, Bill Sienkiewicz, exactly. Like Bill Sienkiewicz now, yeah. would fucking kill. Well, us, exactly, sir. and th- I think that is actually a really good point. This is young Bill Sienkiewicz. This is Bill Sienkiewicz in yeoman mode before he switches into invincible god mode, and it is it's it is a heartbreaker. Like the stuff that you see in here, I do have to say like the, the scene where uh, you just get three panels where Alicia and is babysitting Franklin. And let's face it. It's just the part where he's like, do you think they'll come back? And she's like, we can, but no. we, yeah. She's like, I, I'm, uh, they're going to be fine. What's great is this really is like, they are fucking with us because not only do you have Franklin pouring ketchup onto his food so that it spills on the floor but you actually have alicia who is blind carrying two two bowls of steaming hot soup toward him everything is in place for the third degree burns (laughs) of franklin richards it's totally all in place and then you just cut away from it and it's like (laughs) it's amazing to me exactly your family will be fine franklin but what about what about you i am blind i'm carrying two things of soup and you're being really loose with that ketchup like whole shit you better hope that the ff get out of that situation in time because that's the real ticking time bomb un Unbelievable. Uh, Unbelievable. So so let's go from this terrible comic to another terrible comic. Oh, yes. 226. <laughs> uh, the Samurai Destroyer. Or Doug Mitch really wants to wrap up Shogun Warriors unlike anyone else ever. I but can't him. actually do it by showing the Shogun Warriors because Marvel has lost the license. It's the best. And again... I'm sorry, but you have this. This is somewhere between where Mench is. Say what you will. He's trying to wrap up the Shogun Warriors, but he's also like, okay, I've got a visual plot. This literally starts with a giant hand snagging a Czechoslovakian train right off the tracks and making off with $70 million in gold bullion. And. Uh, then you go on, you've, you've got your FF scenes, um, but you've got the Shogun Warriors who pop up, who are like, yeah, after, you know, our series got canceled, we were, we still had our robots and we were going to, you know, go on and continue to fight crime. You you called, you called the last storyline modeling. And I think that's a really good description of all of these issues. It's true. These issues are especially joyless and they're trying not to be they're trying to have comedy in there Mm -hmm. but not only is it not funny comedy these are just not fun comics they're not uh and when the shogun warriors reappear here it's a big deal Mm -hmm. uh in in a way to emphasize that because they show up and they are like one of them has his arm in a sling they are all so fucking depressed Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, we tried to be heroes, but it just didn't work out, you guys. Oh, man. Well, and they have a big crisis. They, at the end of their series, the Order of the Light, the special um, semi-cultish giant robot uh, provider people who gave these three gifted individuals giant robots with which they could help the world after the order of the light gets destroyed in the last issue of the Shogun warriors comic and they're on their own, they basically aren't paying attention to their giant robots. They're like busy doing their jobs. And then 
someone else, another giant robot, shows up, destroys their giant... There, destroys the Shogun Warriors so irrevocably, and it's great. All you can see are the smoking rubble of the robot bodies, but it's very clear you cannot see any likenesses of the Shogun Warriors. So it's exactly we don't we don't have to license anymore, you guys. The Shogun Warriors are done. All right, they're done. You're just yeah, just take our work for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You'll never see them again. Nope. You sure won't, but you will see a giant robot that again, Bill Sienkiewicz is like. Mm. You know, like he's not. Yeah, exactly. Bill Sienkiewicz is like, really? Do I have to? Uh, okay. What should I have also, on here? I do like the way he draws the giant robot. The giant robot, and I'll have to put images of this in the show notes, kind of looks like he's dancing. Oh, he totally he does. Just like yeah. He doesn't look like he's on a rampage. He looks like he's just like booging around. <laughs> he totally does. He looks like the, the full page, and it's one of the few times you actually get. It's one of the few times you get a full page. Block. Yeah. And, and somehow Sienkiewicz really does. It's supposed to be, I mean, again, Munch, full-page splash of a giant robot wrecking Japan. Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, I have no idea what that looks like. What does that look like? I'm going, I think it basically looks like, um, it looks It looks kind of like a weird electronic version of uh, a cross between Darth Vader and Iron Man and uh, the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz basically boogieing down and like kicking the shit out of a building. Like he's really, it looks like he's doing a happy dance. Everything that full page spread, that is the happiest looking little robot, I gotta tell you. Anyway, the scenes in which he goes about ripping off buildings and being fought, fighting the army and. Um, trapping people within like collapsed coliseums, all visual stuff that Sienkiewicz is like, I really don't give a shit. Like, I kind of want to like, I want to draw this evil guy and give a good close up of his evil guy face. Um, and, uh, and it's very important that he has purple pants. It's bad, Graham. These two issues are so bad. 226 is just terrible. Actually, just really, 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 really bad. It's, it's rank. It's rank. I mean, and again, if you look at it, there's it moves like it's supposed to move like a motherfucker. You literally have the FF. You've got the introduction of the Shogun Warriors. You get their sob story. You get this robot like committing rampage after rampage and the FF losing the first fight and then on the verge of... The second fight, they're able to defeat it only because Reed really was listening to Franklin play with his toys in like a full page sequence. I mean, it's a stuffed issue, but it is, it's so dull. But none of it is stuffed uh, with quality. No, it's, <laughs> well, see, I mean, it's really. Yeah. I mean, it it, it it is, it's bad. It's interesting to me that, that Mench who, I mean, I have, I read these issues while the uh, still untouched by me, but my, two volumes of Shang-Chi, the Master of Kung Fu Omnibus, which I'm totally looking forward to digging into, I, I'm kind of scared now. I'm like, no, no, no. I know those were better than this. I know those were better than this. It, it, it's kind of amazing that you... Because, I mean, I've, I've not read through Moon Knight, but I, I know that the Mench and Kevich Moon Knight run is supposed to be like this amazing comic. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really difficult reading these to believe that. Yeah. I the, the best yeah. thing is like, well, you guys really shouldn't have done superhero comics. <laughs> From, well, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, part of it is is like it helps that there's one character instead of four. But the fact is, I don't think they're that great a team. I, what I love with Mench is when he's on Master of Kung Fu, there's a lot of stuff. His Godzilla run with Herb Trimpey, they're not a good team. Sienkiewicz goes on to do amazing stuff with without Mench. Mench has done amazing stuff without Sienkiewicz. I have got to sit and dig into those Moon Knight issues, but uh, based on and this... Talking Moon Knight... Yes. Talk about Moon Knight. Do you not love the number of times that they work in Moon Knight references into this comic? It's weird how it's a weird background in-joke where at one point Alicia's talking to Ben on the phone. In fact, that is on page two of the next uh, done in one by Menchin Sienkiewicz, The Brain Parasites. Like Franklin Reed's uh, Moon Knight comic. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, And and Alicia sculpts Moon Knight. It's like... We get it, you guys. You, you worked on Moon Knight. Okay, yeah. it's, it's fine. Yeah. We don't have to keep telling us. It's getting a little desperate now. Ah, uh, Graham. So, yeah, it, it pops up a lot. Like, probably because it's that idea of like, hey, remember when we did quality? Remember, we're capable of quality. Come on, guys. Remember us? You can't really hate this shit because we can do quality. Instead, okay, so, get... so let's speed through 227 because Please. it's another lack of quality issue. Oh, uh, the brain parasites is everything that you would want a story called the brain parasites to be except for good. <laughs> there are giant insects which are attaching themselves to the bodies of people and turning them into monsters. This includes they get Sue towards the end of the story. Yeah. After having done everything else. And Sue literally physically turns into a monster, which is kind of weird until in a dramatic moment Reed just takes the brain parasite off her, and everything's fine. Yeah, it's uh, we we could talk about it because it it builds a subplot in here that uh, essentially the FF are trying to solve the problem of uh, this weird prehistoric trilobite, uh, which basically looks like a creepy motherfucking thing. It really did just give me the heebie-jeebies. Attaches itself to various uh, animals out at this crazy lake where, once again, the FF have been lured with the promise of a vacation. And uh, these any animal that it attaches to ends up devolving, which, okay, then getting crazy mental powers, which, like, huh, what? And explodes in their quest to drink up oil because, of course, oil is... Uh, you know, fossil fuel that was around the time of the trilobites. Honestly, I will say this. Not only did the, did the creepy thing crawling up the back of Sue and attaching itself, you know, a crawling up behind her hair, creep the living shit out of me. But (laughs) it is actually like that part of it is super creepy. Yeah. There, there's some stuff in here, but, um, but because instead of Senate, you have B Patterson, I'm assuming Bruce, uh, inking Sienkiewicz it's it's a pretty good looking issue like it doesn't re- it looks even less like an FF comic but it, it looks, looks even less like Sienkiewicz y- yeah actually it really has like because unsurprisingly it's got um it's it's got a variety of alien riffs to it in fact at one point uh the trilobite has attached itself to a river eel 
that more or less turns itself into a very, very Geiger-esque looking alien thing that mm-hmm. Ben is trying to slug it out with in the water. The panels are actually really lovely. Rather than trying to bring Sienkiewicz's rendering back in line with the Senate style, Patterson takes it and blows it out into something that really looks a lot more like a Bernie Wrightson FF comic. And I'm okay with it. As it done in one, it is not as hateable or disappointing as the Shogun Warriors comic, but it is also still, again, not a good comic. And it's not really, I should say, technically a done in one because part of the point of it is it turns out that the exploding uh, creatures were due to Franklin's powers. Because he has no control over his powers, he can't really help the FF the way that he would like. So in issue 228, Ego Spawn, again with Mench Sienkiewicz, uh, Sienkiewicz doing the layouts and Sinnott doing and the Sinnott finishes. Doing, yeah. uh, which looks much better, I think. Uh, well, again, it looks much better than we've been used to when it's Mench and... Uh, uh, and when it's Sienkiewicz and Sinnott, because it looks fully Sinnott, and there's some gorgeous facial expressions, uh, but you still have some weird storytelling choices since you've got Sienkiewicz doing the layouts. Um, Johnny gets a love interest. Sienkiewicz's layouts are, are notably bad, right? <laughs> they really are. It's weird. It's just not his thing. He just... I was like, when I saw that, I'm like, oh boy, that's... Mm, I, would, I, I would almost prefer they went the other way with this, but... Uh, I can't even really wrap my brain around what Doug Mensch was thinking with uh, Ego Spawn uh, in that um, uh, the very short, short pitch to the extent I can do it is Reed hunts up an old buddy of his who has been working with um, biofeedback and uh, more or less is like, hey, can you help me figure out what Franklin's powers are and how to control them? And one of the things that, again, I appreciate is throughout the course of the issue, Mench actually has a scientist who more or less acts like a scientist and runs through several hypotheses about Franklin's powers that don't work and then uses them to build on his next hypothesis. I kind of like the faux science in this up until the point where by doing the biofeedback, Franklin's... um, hidden resentments of the FF, particularly Johnny's uh, stronger interest in his new uh, love mate than Franklin's actual powers, manifests itself in Franklin sending a big blob of uh, ectoplasm, psychic ectoplasm, up into the air. A blob of magic. Yeah, to take over a... um, thin-skinned bully who's trying to pick a fight with Johnny turns him into easily, I would have to say, the worst design villain we have yet to see in the FF comic ever so far. What? You you don't like the man wearing the skimpy purple leotard, purple boots, purple gloves, and completely generic helmet? It's, Although the mustache really sets it off. Oh, it it is it is literally like Bill Sienkiewicz was like, take a drawing of a wrestler, cut and paste a picture of the swordsman from the Avengers comic, paste <laughs> the head of the swordsman Lucifer from X Men. Oh yeah, right. It's it's kind of well, but then you've got the mustache 
Like it's who knows? It is bad design. In some ways, it sort of reminds me of uh, the really boring Gideon, the other mustached villain, except with an even less interesting costume. Just the fact that that Bill Sienkiewicz is like, eh, why not a purple unitard and gloves? Like I've got it done. You can tell he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy who is basically trying to beat up Johnny while saying like, and you, Johnny, you ran out on me. Your date and your stomach were more important than me. Well, I'm sick of it. You hear, and I'm going to get you for it. Meanwhile, Franklin strapped into a chair has the bully saying things like, no, I got to save face. Can't let Betty see me back down from him just because he can burn. I ain't going to let him take me. So it's two, two unconvincing characterizations in one. And, um, well, no, no, it's more than just two because the Johnny, the whole Johnny thing in general is weird. Johnny is going out on a date and then like, no, I'll take my date to my nephew's like psychic power test. Yeah. And then is told this might take a while. Why don't you go out on the date anyway? Yeah. What? Yeah. What is that? It's, and I have to say like, uh, Mensch lays a lot of scenes of the FF again. If, like you, like me and Graham, you have fond memories of hijinks in the Baxter building before the start of an adventure, and you'd like to see how that's done, written by someone who enjoyed that, uh, but also is fond of overwriting and drawn by someone who has never read that scene ever. You're in for quite a treat, because let me tell you, the first four pages... Uh, six pages in which every, in which Mensch works heavily to make sure that, that Johnny and his date have super chemistry, but also everyone in the FF loves his date so much that, that it all makes sense to someone that she would want to fly halfway across the country with them to watch some biofeedback tests. It's um, also, She's okay with that. She is. I mean, that's one of those weird things is like she's she's really into this whole sequence um up until spoilers a few issues from now she's really not but for now yeah, for no reason oh it's great it's kind it's really oh boy anyway so yeah really great by which i mean really terrible uh oh my god and it actually ends with the most claremontian pan uh, last page caption ever because because the doctor who's been helping them is like, well, very well, Reed. I can accept that. And good luck. Good luck to all of you. And the final caption is, I. They'll need it. I. Yeah. I. I. Arr. Arr. They'll need it, me mateys. It is I. It is I. Captain Barnacle Bill Minch. Storyteller of the Fantastic Four. Arr. Captain Barnacle Bill Minch. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Anyway, I won't let us get too far off. We've got, we just we're practically at the end of it because all we've got is a, a mega three-parter, which um, yeah. And, and if you thought that we've we've not been let down yet by everything, the three-parter that is the thing from the black hole, Fire Frost, and the Ebon Seeker. Yes, in all the gla gathered gloom. And if you're thinking in particular that that center title. Firefrost and the Ebon Seeker sounds like a terrible prog rock album. 
this whole storyline might make you very happy. I'm actually thinking you've never read Doug Mensch comics before, Graham. Because again, I, I, I don't think I ever have. I think I've read his DC stuff from like the late '80s. Oh, I, I clearly have never read like his early. Marvel Honestly, stuff. you've got to go back and read half of his fucking detective comic run that is titled stuff like "Deep Dark Tears on a Cosmic Dawn." Of fluorescence like that's and I mean that's just that's an issue where like Batman and Catwoman like go and have fries and then end up like punching like a cat burglar you know who Catwoman's personally offended that he uses the name he besmirches the name cats like Munch's titles are just so beautiful because they make Don McGregor seem like not as florid which but the stories themselves, again, this is great. If you want to see an FF trope turned on its head, here is Munch doing, uh, okay, here's my here's my take on the coming of Galactus. Here's my take on a big cosmic threat where something from space comes and fucks up the planet's Kool-Aid and the FF are on the verge of the, the eradication of the entire planet. Um, and... You gotta be like, okay, this is not like it's ever been done before, but it's also it's true. still it's, not any it's good. It's something different. Yeah, but a large part of the differentness is that it's really bad. It's it's it is it's really bad. Um, uh, I don't. The, the really short know. the short yeah. version mm-hmm. is uh, there is this big dark spot in the sky that turns everything negative. Uh, by which I mean visually negative, not that everyone suddenly becomes very depressed, yeah. uh, and essentially kidnaps part of Manhattan, including the Baxter Building. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's is part of the uh, Ebon Seeker or the Ebon Seeker, mm-hmm. who is a, a gen- fairly generic again like villain. He he is a threat because he's a threat essentially, and he attacks the team because he attacks the team. But what's interesting is that Reed in particular is really defeatist mm-hmm. when faced with them. He breaks down in tears and says, "Help and help us! There's nothing, not a single desperate thing we can do about it," which is really unusual. Yeah, that yeah. Reed is so like, "What oh, shit? We're just dead." Right. I, I, there's nothing we do. He uh, zaps them, zaps the Fantastic Four with, I guess, solid darkness. But while they are lost in the darkness, they meet Fire Frost, much like Cloak and Dagger. If the Ebon Seeker is a very black character, by which I mean the color of black, Fire Frost is a very white character, by which I mean the white. And she is a woman. Because she is his equal and his alternative, and she is often being concerned about him, but she could never fight back until she has met the Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. They they will help her fight back, and guess what? They do. There is a really boring as shit flashback origin sequence, yeah, which really reminded me of what was who was the the character that Archie Goodwin wrote the origin story for. That you loved the the origin for, and uh, I thought was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the stranger shows up. It's not Gideon Airwalker. It's the because that's just Galactus's dude. 
It's the other unstoppable character. Fuck. Hold on. Sorry, everyone. The Overmind. The Overmind. The Overmind. Yeah, right. The origin of the Overmind, yeah, the, which is tied so, in with the Stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I, it's the Overmind story, but much more boring. It, it really reminds me of the Overmind. I know uh, it does for you because it has the pre-civilization that existed before civilization. Honestly, it, the sad part is I think that Doug Mensch – if Graham, like me, you were reading GIT core versions of this, uh, heading into these issues, at least once an issue, there was uh, an advertisement for toys for the Disney movie The Black Hole. Uh, yes, which... I, I actually I, I saw that. And I got very weirdly nostalgic. Exactly. I love that movie, and I think it's because I don't remember it, because I ha actually believe it's probably terrible. Okay. A, you're absolutely right. B, the ending of the black hole is where you finally get black hole action. The thing that's really frustrating and disappointing about the black hole is so much of it has to do with, uh, um, you know, all these dudes on the verge of a black hole. And finally, in the last five minutes, they finally go into the black hole. And what's interesting, quote unquote interesting, uh, is that... For the bad guys of the movie, when they go into the black hole, they are Oh, in that's hell. terrifying. Yeah, and it is. It's truly terrifying. And, and that's the one thing I remember about that yeah, film. That's the best the part end, of it. It's, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ, horrible. Maximilian Shell being locked inside the robot, the robot being called Maximilian, and standing on a a, a, a the eternal hellish landscape, his tormented eyes peering out through the trapped robot shell over all these souls sort of writhing in torment and flame. Awesome. On the opposite side of things, you have the heroes who go through and have that kind of dull, full, faux 2001 a Space Odyssey type experience, except you're led to believe that they are in heaven. Interestingly enough, Doug Mensch, who apparently uh, went and saw the black hole, perhaps based on all the toy ads in the comics leading up to this, basically uses that as the jumping off point for the story of the Ebon Sinker, Ebon Seeker and Firefrost, because they are um, seekers from the far future who, upon receiving a... a something that suggests there is another race out there go exploring this couple who are our lovers um and they end up getting dragged into a black hole and the forces inside that are crazy mystical just as in the movie for one of them it promises and delivers salvation and for the other who is unable to believe he is turned into the ebon seeker um in other words he ends up looking like Bill Sikhevich retracing a Neil Adams drawing of a Sentinel, but then reversing the color pattern. It's annoying <laughs> how derivative that character design is. But Sadly, um, it, you're not wrong. Yeah. So, so the whole idea in which the Ebon Seeker is still continuing to search out f for life and us ends up coming to each planet and blowing it up in turn. And because he is suspicious, believes he is being attacked by the matter that is um, reacting poorly with his antimatter. Uh, you know, the first issue shows him, you think he's attacking the planet, but he himself believes that he is being attacked. In the second issue, 
uh, Fire Frost has saved the FF from being wiped out because she feels that they are the champions that she needs because they can embrace hope, even though you saw Mr. Fantastic literally giving up hope in that very issue. There's a lot of fighting that, again, would seem very cosmic, except it's Bill Sienkiewicz drawing it. And so the best thing you can say is there's a panel of uh, Ben Grimm literally punching this guy in the nuts, like just flat out. You see him just ramming his fist in between this guy's groin, which kind of sucks. And perhaps all the matter, antimatter might make us think of the negative zone. Why? Yes. Read decides to open up the negative zone and use it to not destroy but rather heal the ebon seeker and teach him that in fact there he's not trapped in this paranoid uh, acid trip that everyone's trying to destroy him because they are actually able to help him for the first time in a thousand planets and finally he's able to see and hear fire frost who convinces him that he's awesome and of course it turns out later that um in an amazing epilogue actually i do have to say the, the carl sagan epilogue the carl sagan epilogue is awesome because not only does it talk about how this spaceship in a very star trek literally star trek the motion picture jammed together with the black hole not only is the spaceship that shows that there's another civilization that this this these people find ends up being Voyager far in the future. But I love the last page kicker, which was because I was reading it so fucking fast. I didn't realize it was more or less set up on the previous pages in healing the Eben seeker. Reed Richards was only able to do this by taking an enormous chunk of Manhattan and shooting it into the negative zone, not just the FF, not just the Baxter building, but several entire fucking blocks of the FF. And I have to say, Graham, for me, I would have been entirely happy if it, someone in today's decompressed uh, narrative story times would be basically more than willing to pick up the FF forced to defend, save an angry, resentful set of Manhattan blocks that they have uh, you know, shot into the negative zone for the good of all mankind. As it is, that is literally put together in comically fast fashion in issue 231 in all the gathered gloom in which, uh, oh my God, Sienkiewicz, Senate and more. I just love how much uh, Bill Sienkiewicz is at a loss to try and because once again you get yet another negative zone villain who's like what's this invaders i must fuck up their kool-aid because i am the baddest of bad asses uh and sinkevich is like yeah i think neil adams drew a magneto costume that right i it, can it just totally is the, redraw... the magneto savage land costume yeah, completely completely and totally but, he's like but purple yeah yeah pur purple and red and uh, and I'm going to give him some weird eyeglasses, but it's unbelievable. So uh, this storyline, which again feels like three issues of a regular comic, more or less jammed into one, introduces a dozen, half a dozen uninteresting regular Joes who are trying to survive in new in this new section of New York. Comically, one of which the bad guy is a dude who's a top-level manager 
who's all about like overseeing the demolition of a building and is like everyone's getting in the way of us doing our job let's fuck up the fantastic four and the rest of the average new yorkers we've seen are kind of like sure it's the ff's fault which to be fair it kind of is well they're clearly not going to save us yeah it totally is um there's a great i love the moment where bill sinnott just gives up and walks off the book, and literally the next page is Bill Sienkiewicz being inked by someone else, and it's nine million times more Bill Sienkiewicz-y than it was on the first twelve pages. It's it's weirdly um, Kyle Baker inky. Like yeah. it's clearly not Kyle Baker. It's it's too many years, but it, it's it's the weirdest. Who is who is the other inker in this? I don't know, but I have to say. The stuff in the second half of the book looks the most like the issues of Moon Knight that I'm used to reading from. Yeah, from I, I'm I'm looking it up on uh, Jerome Moore. Jerome Moore, no idea. Anyway, so, oh, no. and then Joe Sinnott comes back for literally the last page, or maybe draws the last no, page. No, he he he. I'm not sure. Definitely, it's not Sinkevich. Do you think it's like John sh- Romita, like with like yeah, a real I, serious deadline? Yes. Someone else comes in to do like the most half-assed epilogue page ever, yeah. where they're like, "Remember that girlfriend we've trying kind of been trying to write in for Johnny? She's decided she doesn't like him anymore. The end." And then you have three policemen being like, "Whatever happened to that villain? <sighs> Never mind." <laughs> That being said, once again, the level of science blabbity blab here as to how everyone ends up like rocketing uh, this bunch of the FF um, of Manhattan back into Earth, complete with a description of the various levels of the negative zone in a way that almost makes sense, is kind of interesting to me in a completely nerdy way. So all of which is to say... As Graham uh, 100% correctly surmised, although they are terrible issues, um, I sort of enjoy 229 through 231 for its absolutely 100% thwarted ambition, but ambition nonetheless. It really feels like... Yes? I said before we started recording that I kind of wanted to talk about these like as a one-er when we were done. Right. this is a very strange, unfantastic for like run of a book. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't feel like the the comic we've been reading up to this point. And on that level, I really appreciate it. I mm-hmm. think that there is an ambition, albeit an ambition that is completely not fulfilled by the particular talents of these people. What is really interesting to me is all of the Munch and Cabbage run mm-hmm. is monster stories. Like, the FF has turned into a superhero book by this point. Mm-hmm. And then they just jettisoned it for really, really run-of-the-mill monster stories. See, and this is what I think is interesting, Graham, is for me, you could very much say the same, minus the phrase run-of-the-mill, for like the last year of Kirby's run. Well, no, I, 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 I agree. You know, like clearly, clearly, Munch is looking back at the Lee Kirby run. I didn't remind me of the last year, but it reminded me of the early days of Lee Kirby. Even to me, everything past issue sixty, you know, is like you've got the um, 
here's here's like read you know here's them going on a vacation here's them dealing with a scientific threat that another scientist has found here's them dealing with the lost civilization here's them dealing with the large cosmic threat like honestly in theory that this is what i find fascinating each one of them is arguably a very traditional kernel at which Mensch and Sienkiewicz are trying to do completely different things. And to me, the reason why I don't necessarily think of it as a wonder is the first few issues in particular have Mensch coming up with sort of big Kirby-esque um, visuals, lots of giant stuff literally giant there's a lot of giantism throughout their issues and Sinkevich more or less like i said kind of blowing it just not able to 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 deliver on that stuff because he's just not thinking of it in the same way uh mench's overriding and Sinkevich's completely different take on it give them this very different feel it also makes it a failure but what i find fascinating is just the fact that looking at the shit that is jammed into one issue or even two issues at the beginning becomes stuff where or uh, becomes at the end a big three-parter where mench is i think trying to pace it for it's super super dense but at least visually um he's trying to give Sinkevich more room to breathe i uh, and what's really interesting is he's trying to give Sinkevich more room to breathe and Sinkevich refuses to take that room yeah no he really he really does not there's there's it's, things it's... that as, as much as stylistically Sienkiewicz is art is very different from everything you've seen before, yeah. just in terms of pitch layout and in terms of the pacing, Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. it's miles away. Yeah, it, it is so different. It is so vastly different. When you get to that issue of Ego Spawn, which again, because it's being fully rendered by uh, Joe Sinnott, it quote unquote looks the most like an FF comic that the book has looked in a while, but because of Sienkiewicz's pacing, his page structure, and even some of the design, it's it's utterly unlike the FF. Like, it is as strange as you can get. And I think, again, in my brain, it would not surprise me if this is around the time that, you know, if Byrne has been keeping half an eye on the FF and is, you know pushing for his run he is aware that like senate has has got to go like because it just it just can't look even when it looks right there's just no way that senate senate's too strong a visual tie to the history of the book um to make it work like you either end up having it fall into classic Kirby derivativeness uh, which is dull or you end up getting the stuff that something like Ego Spawn suggests which is um, it's like you're reading an FF comic from a parallel universe a parallel universe where no one learned how to tell stories you know and <laughs> so it's just it's it's 
so to me, it, it's not quite a wonder all those issues because you see, um, you see different challenges in them. And, you know, the only thing that to me that's truly consistent is the failure. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's such a frustrating series of issues. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I really found this a struggle to get through these issues. Mm-hmm. But there is something weirdly thrilling about seeing the series become something else, even though that thing is a failure. Yeah. I, I would have to say that even though these issues were grueling, I would still pick them to read or reread over the end of Wolfman's run. The, the, the stuff that we discussed in the previous episode was much more painful to me. Yeah, than this stuff. Yeah, I I I completely agree. Uh, and, but what's also really interesting is imagine being a fan who's reading the FF in real time. When mm-hmm. Burn comes on, mm-hmm. it must have felt like such a relief because these these comics don't work. Like mm-hmm. they really don't. And say what you like about Burn, and we will next month. Yeah, they're more simultaneously in tune with what you expect from a Fantastic Four comic. Yes, and feel like something quote unquote new. Yeah. Yeah, he he figures you know? out he really figures out like oh, I've got to keep. Uh, he he basically figures out that he has to flip the rhythm. Weirdly enough, I think we'll see. Graham, let's talk a little bit about that. I was thinking, and this may sound crazy, and you would have a much better sense that uh, we did Jesus a, a ridiculous number of issues this time around. Can we turn around and just do? The first like six, six? exactly. Yes, you All and right. I are on the same page. Fabulous. So yeah, the next time we meet, let's do. Well, actually, do is it? Yeah, two thirty-two through two thirty-six, or through two thirty-seven, two four six. Yeah, through two thirty-seven. Jeff can't yeah, count. Let's see if two thirty-seven doesn't end up in a cliffhanger. I'm fairly sure it doesn't. It but, does. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just glanced at it. No, it, it does, does not. not. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. So people, yeah. So let, let's do those six issues. It's weirdly enough, I think we're going both going to have a lot to say because mm-hmm. Burn very strongly comes onto this book, being like, "I'm going to try and bring back the Kirby magic." Yeah, we'll, uh, and yeah, we'll talk in about the that. end, mm-hmm. kind of succeeds, but I think succeeds more in evoking Stan Lee. And this was going to be my argument, but uh, is that just looking at it, when I was saying the thing about Senate is, is yeah, that, that Lee is like, uh, Byrne is like, I'm going to flip the visuals away from the Kirby Senate look, and, but I'm going to take the stories back closer to the Stan Lee. And that's a, a real reversal on the way things had been going before. And, uh, and, as it turns out, it is just the jujitsu flip that the book ends up needing. So those are the the last for people playing along at home. Those are the last six issues of 1981, issues 231 through 237, and we will be reading those in Baxter Building episode. Jesus, 25. 25. Yeah. Look at us, world. We made it to the 25th episode of the Baxter Building and to John Burns Run. Go well, us. What, what, I, what I kind of like is uh, our first year was spent entirely on the Lee Kirby Run. Mm-hmm. And then our second year was spent basically getting between there and Burn. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that is an era, like mm-hmm. the second era of the comic. I agree. Because it's a very directionless time for the book. 
mm-hmm. Luke doesn't really know what it wants to be besides it wants to be what it used to be. Mm-hmm. When Burn comes on, it still has a level of nostalgia, but the series in general just shifts because after Burn, you're in the point where, for the most part, you have set creative teams and eras. Mm-hmm. You have Burn, then you have a little bit of sort of flux where you've got uh, Cern and Bashema, but then you're into the Engelhart run, which is fairly lengthy. Mm-hmm. Then after Engelhart, you're straight into Simonson. After Simonson, you're straight into DeFalco. Right. And then the book's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it feels like we're, we're sh- we've shifted out of the, you know, more than 100 issues of no one quite knowing what to do with the Fantastic Four. And also no one sticking around in the Fantastic Four. See, this is what I think is, is interesting, is kind of the chicken and egg thing that we'll never really know for sure. But there are many indications that part of the problem, and this will certainly be the thing that uh, Mr. Jim Shooter will go on to insist very fervently, is that Marvel itself, the company, was not cohesive enough that any team could actually really... No one was paying enough attention to their runs. No one really finished their runs during that 100 issues. So even if there was a direction, it didn't end up being a direction that really came to any fruition. Like So if you're lucky, what you got were several different teams across the course of that 100 issues, each of whom got one stab at a decent storyline and one half flailing, and then a hint that they might have come up with something else, but then they're off the book even before it finishes up. So it's, uh, there honestly, there was some enjoyable comics in there, but it is. Oh, there a... really was. Like, mm-hmm. there, there, there's definitely issues that, and for the most part, actually, it was issues. The only extended run I think that I really liked was the Wolfman run going up to 200. Mm-hmm. But the individual issues, there's some great stuff in there. Yeah, I as you know, I was a much fonder of the the uh, the Thomas uh, Perez stuff than you ended up being. But but I think the Thomas Perez stuff was fun um, and really enjoyable. And then the the I don't know, you know, the Conway stuff ended up being just an enormous fucking mess. But wow, there's some lunacy in there. So I don't know, you know, it's. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a trek. It's been a trek to get here. <laughs> it's, but it's I like that we've I like that we've ended the second year, ending this year as well though. Yeah, like I think it, so it feels like it feels like we are actually at the we're at the verge of something big, Jeff. <laughs> and I'm I'm super curious what you're going to make of the burn run. I am too. I have to say I am too because uh, because I've only read bits and pieces of it and there were things that um, I really liked a lot and there were also things that rubbed me that just flat out irritated the shit out of me and I'll be very curious to see if any of that holds true this time around. So Yeah, this is where I tell everyone that if they're looking for show notes for this episode, you can find it at waitwhatpodcast.com because that's one of the places we are on this lovely internet. There is also waitwhatpods.tumblr.com for those like looking at pictures from comics, panels, covers, occasionally with a little bit of, of blurbage from me or you, Jeff. There is also the Twitter at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff is on Twitter solo at lazybastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter, so at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. We are also 
Patreon-supported podcast. Baxter Building only exists because of the kindness of our Patreon supporters. But when I say Patreon, Jeff has something to tell you. I do. This is where I burst through the doors in dramatic uh, Kirby-esque fashion. And if uh, Sienkiewicz was telling it, it would be a close-up on my butt as the whole thing is shown from behind uh, with the doors kicking open at Graham's startled face. As I say, Graham, there's a wonderful group of people who make all this possible, as you mentioned, this Baxter Building podcast, but also thanks to their kind support, we have sort of the energy and the wherewithal to continue doing um, two issues of Wait What, two episodes of Wait What every month. Uh, and we are grateful to everyone, um, our listeners and our Patreon supporters, who help make that all possible. We should especially um, give a shout out to the kind crew at the American Ninth Art Studios, uh, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're um, deeply indebted to both of those um, fine groups, uh, the Empress, for not destroying the entire uh, spiral galaxy in her mighty paw. <laughs> And the American Ninth Third Studios for being just swell uh, group of people. We are very, very grateful. And also not destroying the galaxy. Oh, and also, yeah, it's true. They could very well and have just never mentioned it to us. So, you know, thank you. Thank you, uh, one and all. Jeff, normally this is where I would sing us out, but it's the Baxter Building, which means that you get that honor. That's right. We will be back, people, in a month. And we'll be doing the first six issues of John Burns Run. But until then, Mr. Lester. Join us next time when we will meet you in the lobby of the Baxter Building.